Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. This is the last episode of season one. So thank you for going on this journey with us. We've been experimenting and growing, learning how to do this podcasting stuff. There's <laughs> there's a, a comment that was left on our first episode with a, a low review that says, it sounds like these guys have never made a podcast before. And, and you know what? We hadn't. But uh, this was something that David and I wanted to explore and see if there was a market for. And as it turns out, a bunch of y'all are listening and we're very pleased to keep working on it. We've had a blast making them and we've got a lot of plans and hopes and dreams for what this could be. So uh, this episode's a little different. You only have me. David's not with me today. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before, before you turn it off, here's what this episode is going to look like. We're going to talk a little about our moral leader. I'm going to make you hang on for it for a second. Um, We're going to talk about where the show is going for season two. And at the very end, I'll give you a preview of David's upcoming book on post-evangelical life. And that's all very exciting. But today you have just me coming to you live from beautiful Ackworth, Georgia, uh, here at the home studio, holding it down, getting it ready, because like David's very busy. Uh, he's traveling all over the place, working like crazy. He's on sabbatical right now, which a lot of people think is like an extended vacation. But so far, I think he's finished two editing projects, written a bunch of articles, and is deep into... The post-evangelical, where do we go from here book that we're all very excited about. He's also traveling around speaking. He was in Arizona recently. Um, In just a few days, this coming uh, two Thursdays from now, David will be speaking, uh, giving a lecture called What is Truth and Why It Matters Today More Than Ever, which sounds really exciting and dramatic at Scottish Baptist Church at the University of West Scotland in the UK. So he's, he is busy. He's gone. He's locked down, but also, well, I've got a lot going on too, as it turns out. Um, by the time you hear this podcast, my first child will have been born. It's, uh, scheduled for, uh, this Monday for today. Um, so very good chance that as you're listening to this, I am becoming a father for the first time, and my family could not be more thrilled. So we appreciate your thoughts and your prayers. And please, uh, here's here's some comment bait. Leave me a, a comment with your best single parenting piece of advice. The one thing that you wish you had known when you became a parent. Our last great moral leader is also the youngest in the book. She has entered the pantheon of celebrities with only one name, standing amongst the ranks of Oprah and Bono. The one name, and you catch on, is Malala. Born in 1997, Malala Yousafzai is 22 years old this year. 
And so far, here's here's some of her accolades that we can drop for you. Things, little things you might have heard of, like the Nobel Peace Prize, the Philadelphia Liberty Medal, the International Children's Peace Prize, the Order of the Smile, United Nations Prize in the Field of Human Rights, the Mother Teresa Award, Ambassador of Conscience Award, Teen Hero, Ellis Island Medal of Honor, Glamour Award for Girls Hero, and Best Memoir for her book, I am Malala. The world learned Malala's name when she was shot in the head by the Taliban in 2012. An interesting news story for a 15-year-old girl. So how does a 15-year-old Pakistani woman become the target of an assassination attempt? Even before she had become an internationally known figure because of the Taliban attempt on her life, she was a young activist in her home of Pakistan, representing girls' rights for education and opposing, with the support of her family, the growing influence of the Taliban in the region. She was already a writer and a speaker, but the attack which she miraculously survives gives her an international platform. She continues her activism today, opening schools for girls, bringing attention to women's education needs, in the East and around the world. And it's hard to talk about Malala because she's only 22. She has so much work ahead of her. David and Colin struggled with the question of do we put her in the book? Not does she merit it, but she's so young. Is it even worth taking the time to research and work extensively with her for this text? Because we don't yet know what all she will become. We don't yet know who all she's going to be and what her total impact and legacy will turn out to look like. But they decided that as they progressed through time with the book, that it was appropriate to end the book in the 21st century with this bright light, with this young leader who is going to change the world, who is inspiring us even at 22. And I look at the world as someone about to become a father, and I'm thinking about how do I raise a child? How do I give my kid the opportunities to grow into the kind of person who could be a young woman or a young man of such tremendous character? And so I was very compelled in studying her, looking at her family. She was celebrated her whole life. She was validated in a culture that does not always appreciate women. She was given opportunities. She was nurtured. Her talents and her passions were given energy by her family. She had a supportive father who poured resources into her, who gave her the opportunities to grow into the person that the world needed her to be. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 6, when it talks about how it wants the commandments of the Lord to be studied, the author says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames and on your gates. We need 
to take responsibility for the people closest to us and their development. Too many times we outsource moral and personal and character and faith formation to our schools and our churches when the primary location for moral development, for ethical development, for faith development is in the home. That the things that matter to us as people and as families and as cultures, that we should be discussing these with our kids at home, that they should be always before us. That we don't leave the moral formation of our children up to someone else, but we take responsibility for them. I'm already, I'm thinking about what kind of person I want my child to be. And not just when they grow up, but when they're 15, what kind of person do I want them to be? I want them to be a person of courage and of love, of humility, someone driven by a moral vision, someone who loves justice, who values hospitality, someone who listens, someone who cares about something. And so I'm making plans already. How am I going to equip my newborn to become this kind of child and this kind of person and this kind of adult and maybe that kind of a leader? We have to take responsibility for the future and the world we want, starting with our own families and our own communities and the people closest to us. I also think about First Timothy 412, and I know, I'm sorry, very churchy, very youth group verse here, but Paul says to his young follower, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Paul, this fatherly mentor figure to the young Timothy, says, I believe in you. You Don't let anyone think that just because you're young, you don't have something to say. Just because you're young, you don't have anything important to contribute. Set an example. Be a person of tremendous courage. Someone who, when you speak, people listen. Someone who shows an example of what maturity could look like in conduct. Show them what it's like to live your faith, to be a person of love. At the church where I pastor, I have the opportunity to spend a lot of time with children and teenagers. And one of the things that's important in that ministry is that we teach them how to ask questions, how to think about the world, that we don't teach them to just sit and to listen, but that we that we give them opportunity to engage with adults in their church, that we give them the opportunity to engage honestly with the text, with real issues that we call them forward to take courageous stands on issues of justice and faith and ethics and dignity, that we tell them that just because you're young doesn't mean that you have some, don't have something to say. We give them the opportunity to become the people that we want them to be. And that's what Malala's father gave to her, the opportunity to be the person she was supposed to be. I would encourage you to read her biography. I have a copy of it here. My wife's read it. It's... It's excellent. It's very good. There's also speeches all over the internet from her. She's prolific in her blogging and her speaking. So take some time. Get to know her voice. She's someone worth watching and someone worth listening to. So let's take a minute. And with the permission of the publisher, 
we're going to listen to the leadership lessons from the first 21 years of Malala's life, after which we'll do a little bit of housekeeping. Leadership Lessons Malala Yousafzai's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Never underestimate family. We have talked about the importance of family for every leader, and Malala is a quintessential example. Consider what lessons and values you inherited from your own family. Unearned suffering is redemptive. We should never make an idol out of suffering. Nevertheless, there is something about innocence who suffer for no reason that compels us to act. The fact that Malala was so young heightened global moral sympathy for her. Combine gifts and practice. Malala was always bright, articulate, and a natural leader. She also practiced writing and delivering speeches in school and had experience with press and government officials, all of which left her poised beyond her years when she suddenly became a global figure. Faith traditions are contested. It is important to distinguish between different versions of the same faith. All faiths are contested. We dare not make sweeping generalizations about other religions. Many of the moral leaders in this book strove to articulate a different version of faith from the one popular in the society around them. Don't underestimate young people. The world is biased against the very old and the very young. Defenders of the status quo often dismiss reform movements as the work of kids who will one day see the light. On the contrary, young people ask questions and pose answers that shake up moribund systems. Malala Yousafzai is the only leader in this volume who is still alive today. Including a living leader carries some amount of risk. Moral leaders are, after all, as prone to failure, weakness, blind spots, and wrong-headed decisions as the rest of us. Other leaders have lived long enough to tarnish their legacies. We hope that will not be the case for Malala. We are optimistic because, while young, she has been remarkably consistent and unflinching. She has already accomplished so much, yet she admits that she is just getting started. People prayed to God to spare me, and I was spared for a reason, to use my life for helping people, she wrote in her autobiography. She concludes, I love my God, I thank my Allah, by giving me this height to reach people. He has also given me great responsibilities. Peace in every home, every street, every village, every country. This is my dream. Education for every boy and every girl in the world. To sit down on a chair and read my books with all my friends at school is my right. To see each and every human being with a smile of happiness is my wish. I am Malala. My world has changed, but I have not. We await the next chapter in the life of the girl from the Swat Valley, who became an international inspiration and a moral leader worth studying. Excellent. So, some things about the Kingdom Ethics podcast. This is the end of season one, and we're calling it a success. We've learned a lot, we've grown a lot, we've come a long way from the, the first episodes, and we're very pleased with where we're headed. David is traveling, and today my first child was born. So, we're both pretty busy at the moment, but we're not going to disappear entirely. 
You'll have to wait a little bit for season two, but not too terribly long. In the meantime, there may be some uh, bonus episodes coming out. We're lining up a few interviews, and uh, we'll, we look forward to sharing them with you. Also, keep an eye on our social media. You should be following us at on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. David and I both have Facebook pages and Twitter and Instagram where we share updates about the work that we're doing. You can also follow David at davidpgushy.com and myself at revjeremyhall.com. We'll also keep you updated on David's writing projects as they continue to unfold. And I'm going to leave you today with a couple excerpts from his, his upcoming work in progress, being written now, maybe even this moment, called For the Post-Evangelicals. Where do we go from here? The church exists to follow Jesus and to advance his kingdom. Study reveals that marks of the kingdom include justice, peace, deliverance of the oppressed, healing, and merciful welcome into community for those who need it. The church, in its public-facing witness, scans the horizon, near and far, looking for those who need justice, peace, deliverance, healing, and merciful welcome. The church then advocates for such as these, where and when it has the opportunity to gain audience with the state. Now contrast this vision for Christian politics with a different one. Imagine a church that uses its access to rulers mainly in order to advocate for its own self-interest. Give us, we say, better and broader tax exemptions. Go easy on our pastors when they are caught molesting children. Expand religious liberty rules so that we can discriminate against certain people in our businesses and charities. Give us the best seats at the table when you convene religious leaders. Tell everyone that our religion is the preferred national religion. This is the hopeless corruption of Christian political engagement. The church's public witness must be about common good, not special pleading. And how about this one? For the Christian right, Christian hope alternated with despair, depending on who won each presidential election. When Republicans won, it was time for hope that America will come back to God. When a Democrat won, it was a time for angry despair, nostalgia for the good old days, and a fight to the death. There was no theology of incremental social improvement or kingdom advances. It was all or nothing. Victory with the GOP or apocalypse with the liberal Democrats. The idea that God might be trusted to be working in history, come what may, in any given election, quietly withered away. I look forward to this book. I hope you do as well. We will keep you posted on some of our thoughts as we continue that discussion of what does the church look like as the evangelical tradition declines? What happens to those of us who once found our home there but no longer feel welcome with its trajectory. I look forward to having that conversation with you. And as always, you can reach us um, on our social media. We try to be responsive as best as we can. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. <laughs>